When I was growing up, my dad often repeated to me the famous adage by Zig Ziglar that you can get what you want by helping enough people get what they want. The idea, of course, is that by helping others reach their goals, you create value, and the creation of value attracts value for yourself from other sources. I was having this same thought about worms the other day. Much like humans, worms want to eat well, have a safe place to live, make out, and procreate, and then repeat that process. For me, to reach my goals in the garden, I also want my worms to be safe, fed, and procreate. So I prepare a place for them in my garden that is responsive to their biological needs and creates a living environment for them to thrive. In turn, they keep my living soil thriving and fully functioning to support my cannabis plants. In the end, humans get what we want by helping the worms get what they want. And that is a great relationship. If you want to learn about cannabis health, cultivation, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items and videos, too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire and I am your host, Shango Lose. Today, my guest is Chandler Michalski. Chandler is a microbe and worm farmer and a regenerative farming educator. He is co-founder of the Michigan Compost Cup and Symposium and founder of Beer City Bokashi. He is presently the director of living soil and farm manager at Wormies and a proud member of the West Michigan Growers Group and the Vermin Microbiome Project. Today, we're going to talk about worms. During the first set, we're going to talk about worm physiology and activity, during the second set, we will describe a variety of applications and preparations for worm castings. And in the last set, we will get a better understanding of how to set up worm bins and worm piles to create your own inexhaustible supply of worms. Welcome to the show, Chandler. Hey, Shango. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Well, let's get right into it. So, you know, let's start by identifying the attributes of worms that we find so beneficial. And, you know, I'll be first to say that I'm um, a novice when it comes to worm. I, I haven't had a worm bin. I just know that worms are good for my soil. And so, you know, whenever I find them in the yard, I, I, I put them in my pots, right? So, so I'm only really aware of what I think are the two main advantages of worms. And that is they're wiggling around, aerates the soil, and and then their poop, which, you know, more properly are known as castings. But, but you know, this entire episode is pretty much about worm poop. So let's start there. Um, why are the worm castings themselves so nutritive for the soil? Yeah, so worms are absolutely amazing. And uh, the castings from earthworms contain from 5 to 11 times the amount of available NPK as the soil that the worms ate to produce those castings. And so uh, they'll eat this organic matter, either the mineral soil or the organic matter, all the leaf litter up on top, and they will just absolutely increase the amount of available nutrients um, for the plants. And they do that by um, grinding it up. And uh, there's a whole uh, thing, the, the anatomy of the worm, but basically they have like this gizzard that's full of sand and little rock particles. And uh, th they use that and 
this long muscle um, to kind of grind up all the food scraps that they're eating and uh, get it into small enough particles um, that all of the microbes, all the bacteria in their intestine uh, can further break down those nutrients and uh, deliver available nutrients to the worm, and then everything else is just excreted um, in the, the castings. And so it's a waste product for the worm, but it's absolutely black gold for us. And uh, vermicompost or worm castings are 50% higher in organic matter uh, than soil that has not been wormed or has not been worked through the worms. And so basically just that higher increase in organic matter is going to increase um, all the charge-holding surfaces there. That's going to increase the cation exchange capacity. And so basically all their nutrients that are there in the soil can then attach to the, the worm castings and be right there available uh, for the plant. It's it's interesting that you know we're all in 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 cannabis cultivation. We're always talking about you know adding or improving the nutrients so that they are plant available, right? And yep. and there's a lot of both discussion and straight up arguments online about people you know talking about whether or not this additive or that additive is plant available. And it sounds like these worms are just like a plant like available nutrition machine, like listening to you describe it. I'm like, wow, I would like to take like, you know, like my everything that's in my container garden and just like run it through worms because it, it sounds like whatever goes through them comes out as an upgrade. Exactly. It's a huge upgrade. So you got to think of like the microbiome of everything. So like, it's really easy to just see a worm and think about it. Oh, it's just a worm or see a tree and think about it. Oh, it's just a tree. But inside of that tree, there could be a hundred different strains of fungi living in it, you know, performing their various roles and like that just goes unthought of to most people but same thing with the worm is they have their own microbiome and so they're inoculating everything that passes through it and so they are biology factors they are uh like you know wiggling communities of microbes and so uh that's how we create these plant available nutrients is by cycling them through biology and so it's a uh, like same as fermentation same as composting it's uh returning these fully grown uh, like proteins back to their peptides, back to their amino acids, and creating like the building blocks you know that you can use to you know apply to any of these other plants and it 's an incredible process for sure that 's what I was imagining when you when you described it i 'm like oh they 're kind of like doing natural farming preps inside of them so hundred percent so so yep. all of us who are into you know natural farming and k n f like you know worms are a clear win for us because they are doing a similar kind of work that we do when we're making these preps. Um, yeah, but so, they're doing it 24 seven. Right. right. And, and, All the time. and free. Yep. Um, so, so let's talk about what they're eating because um, I believe that they eat some of the food scraps, but I also believe that they eat perhaps microbes and like pathogens. So, they're 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 also cleaning the soil, yeah. Yep. And so, okay, so there are like seven thousand known species of earthworms around the world. And so, uh, that being said, there's only about sixteen or so that are well studied and deemed uh, like good for composting, good for for gardening and whatnot, uh, that are highly understood. But uh, uh, the rest of them, there's so many worms out there. But yeah, um, it's very true. They do eat the organic matter, but mainly they are eating the microbes that are breaking down that organic matter. So they're eating 
mainly the bacteria, but also the fungi, the nematodes, uh, the protozoa, um, everything that's breaking down these food scraps and that organic matter. And then, uh, yeah, they, uh, they add the calcium carbonate um, in their gut and all of that, uh, all those microbes that are, you know, doing their thing. And so their castings are full of that calcium, but full of all the, the nutrients that the the feedstock contained, but now in a, a plant available form that's been cycled through the, the biology. And so like, it's a popular comparison and, um, what is it? The teeming with microbes, uh, they compare, um, like bacteria to bags of fertilizer. And so basically you have these microbes that are mining minerals out of the soil and then they become bags of fertilizer, they have all those nutrients within themselves, and then you have these plants that uh, are attracting that bacteria and those microbes up to the root zone so they can drink the exudates that the plant is producing for those microbes. And so the plant attracts the certain microbes that it needs that, you know, contains the certain nutrients that it needs, and then a larger uh, trophic level organism will come in, so like protists and nematodes will come in, and they will eat that bacteria and they will take what they need and you know leave the rest and so they rip open that bag of fertilizer right there in the root zone and so um that's how it's plant available is because the bacteria worked through it and so like the mineral itself before the bacteria worked through it and then was you know ripped apart is not plant available and so you need that biology and so like that's how nutrient cycling works and so when we feed um our plants with synthetic uh, salt-based fertilizers, uh, it disrupts that natural cycle that, you know, is billions of years old. And so uh, you get these plants that no longer need to, you know, take some of their photosynthetic energy and put it down specifically to feed the microbes because they say, oh, that's a whole lot of work. Why would I do that when, you know, the farmer can just give me this synthetic uh, fertilizer that I can just uptake right away? And so um, you might see some results by feeding uh, with synthetics for a while, um, but that does not last long term. And uh, you're actually going to dumb down your plants. Um, you're going to dumb down your microbes. You're going to make your plants literally uh, like reliant on that chemical fertilizer every time because they no longer know what they need to do. It sounds like it sounds like you make lazy <laughs> soil that way, and by you know involving the worms choosing to not use salts and to mm, encourage the soil food web that is you know pretty much at the at the base of regenerative farming yep. um we are maximizing our um substrate's ability to do all of the things that we want it to do so it's in very active communication between the plant and the rhizosphere and all the life there absolutely yeah, right on. So, um, so I'm sure that we will get back more to the nutritive quality of the castings at, at a further point in the show. But the 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 second thing I'm aware of is like just the worms' existence in the soil is good because, as we all know, especially when using containers, um, your soil can become compacted over time, yep. and the squiggling around of the worms aerates it. So, will you break that out a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, like I said, there are a bunch of different species of worms, and then there are, like, four main categories of worms. And so, like, they'll 
uh, tunnel and burrow and different methods. And so like the red wigglers that we're common with, uh, super common composting worms, they'll hardly burrow into the soil at all. They want to stay in like that top six to eight inches. And they'll eat a lot of the organic matter and they'll uh, reproduce really quickly, produce a lot of cocoons. But uh, like your night crawlers are going to tunnel more like straight down and create these air columns that are going to stay. And so like different worms will tunnel in different uh, methods and some of them are going to go, you know, more straight up and down, like I said. Some are going to go horizontally. And so like both of those are creating these channels and uh, they fill in those channels with organic matter that continues to decompose. And so like um, some of these air channels that these tunnels that they make um, will eventually fill in with the organic matter and and water and everything but then um, it creates the perfect little channel for roots to find and so like the roots are always looking for the path of least resistance and so now they can find this old mine shaft basically you know and so like it's this old tunnel that's totally full of worm poop and still breaking down organic matter and all those microbes that are associated with that and it's literally everything that the root needs and the perfect little channel for it and uh yeah they uh their their burrows are incredibly important and so and I, I, one, i've never heard a worm tunnel sound so attractive dude yeah <laughs> if, uh, if, if i was a plant root i'd be all like hell yeah it's like a it's like a nutritive slip and slide all the way to the bottom yeah. of the pot. <laughs> perfect way of putting it <laughs> uh, i interrupted you go ahead man no so like uh and a healthy acre of like food production soil, so uh, your farm field, your garden, um, you're going to find two to three million worms in there. And so that comes down to like 50, or between 10 and 50 worms per square foot. And so that's a lot of worms in some healthy soil. And they are absolutely capable of uh, moving about 18 tons of soil every year. And so while they're looking for their food, while they're creating their, their tunnels, they're taking some of those minerals from down and like these night crawlers are taking it from up to like 12 feet down below the surface and they're taking a lot of those minerals and depositing up up on the top and then they're taking some of this leaf litter and bringing it back down and so like they're absolutely changing um both the physical structure as well as like the chemical composition of the soil and so uh a nice comparison is like worms are the beavers of the soil because they're the ecological engineers. You know, they absolutely will change ecosystems. And uh, in the garden, that's a wonderful thing. Um, they can take leaf litter that would have taken one or two years to decompose and they'll turn it over into available nutrients in just three months. But that being said, out in the forest, that might be not what you want. You know, out in these native um, growth forests, uh, if you introduce a lot of earthworms, which this happens a lot in the fishing industry, people have, you know, their leftover bait, and they'll just dump that out in the woods. And especially up in North America, um, in the northern states and up in Canada, where there used to be glaciers, um, there's a lot of areas that are still earthworm-free. And so a lot of people don't consider this, but after the last ice age, um, there were no earthworms up in Canada and the northern United States up in the Great Lakes region where I'm at. Uh, they were totally wiped out from the glacial ice sheets. And so for thousands of years after that, um, there's remained areas that were totally uh, earthworm free. And so they weren't reintroduced until European settlers came and brought with them in their food crops and their ornamental crops 
but also uh, just the ballast of their ship. Uh, they'd used to fill up the bottom of their ship with stones and soil uh, to keep it from you know, popping out of the water. They need to weigh it down. And so once they got to the New World, they'd take all that soil that was down on the bottom and dump it out. And so like, they brought a lot of worms and a lot of worm cocoons with them and totally re-inoculated this area. Uh, so much so that now like, you can go out into a field and you can dig and you'd find worms there that you didn't introduce. And so it's, it's very common to think, okay, these are native, but they were actually reintroduced up here. But, uh, yeah, I know that's, that's a huge tangent there. Yeah, but no, like I want to go down that tangent a little bit more. Um, so this is interesting because if the glaciers got rid of the worms in the in the northern part of the continent and they were gone for thousands of years, that means when um, settlers came and brought them back that they were actually kind of invasive species at that point because the natural local plants had grown up the the the, the local bioregion had developed without worms. And exactly. like you said, they're, they're aggressive processors of like, um, you know, forest duff and things like that. Um, I, I don't know about this, but I can imagine that <clears throat> there might be certain species uh, in the Northern parts of the country that are suffering because of these worms that we all see as an ally. Exactly. And that's a, a tough pill to swallow, you know. It, everybody thinks all oh, worms are absolutely incredible, and they are in a food production system, in a non-natural environment, you know. But out in the native growth forest, um, they can actually really be invasive and detrimental to a lot of na native species. And like I said, um, you know, if you didn't have worms, it would take multiple years for all the leaves to break down. And so, like, that's how you get that beautiful layer of soil duff, or that the forest duff out out there is you have multiple layers of that really spongy, rich, fertile humus um, that's constantly breaking down, and there's so much life that lives in there, and so much of uh, the forest ecology depends on that thick mulch layer. And if you have worms come in, they'll totally clean that out, and bare soil is not good. And uh, so it's definitely something to consider. You know, if you're living in the middle of the woods, uh, maybe keep your worm bin in a bin instead of a, a pile there, and. Uh, the big thing is the fishing, though. That's uh, responsible for a lot of the spread. But um, if humans don't spread them, worms will only travel about a half a mile in 100 years. Oh. And so their populations generally stay where they are, um, but they can travel very, very easily uh, with the help of humans. So the um the the fisherman idea where where we're taking worms to exotic locations where they may not be and then and then depositing them when we leave that reminds me a lot of uh of what they tell us about firewood, right? Don't yep. transport firewood because it's it's filled with all of these localized bugs. And if and if you take these insects and and other species that live in firewood and and move them, you could actually be destroying ecosystems. And when, when I first heard that, that kind of blew me away because it it's it does it's not very intuitive at first to me. Right. And and neither is this bit about worms because in my head worms are everywhere, right? But yep. Clearly, I'm wrong. <laughs> For sure. And so, like, there's still areas, um, like we were saying, up here that are earthworm-free. But down in the southern uh, half of the continent, there are still some native worms. And uh, like I said, you'll find two to three million worms in a healthy acre of, uh, like, food production soil. But out in the woods, you might only find, like, 50,000. 
uh, in an acre. And so there, there's definitely still worms out there, but nothing like you'd find in a garden. Right on. So, so let's talk a little bit about species and, and we're, we don't need to go through like a lot of species, but, um, you know, you've mentioned two already, you've mentioned earthworms and then the red wigglers. And, um, you know, we're going to talk more about setting up worm bins in, in set three, but for right now, um, I want to like kind of focus to this question where if we are talking about adding worms to our containers and beds, do we want to go for a particular species or maybe two species? Like, because I'm sure that after this, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to want to like, you know, put a handful in their pots or whatever. Um, What what should we, would be, what should we be getting? For sure. And I just wanted to touch on this. Um, This is super common misunderstanding. People think earthworms are like a kind of species and red wigglers are a different thing. But like earthworms are the broad category. Red wigglers are one of the worms that are earthworms. And so like you have red wigglers, you have night crawlers, leaf worms, uh, brown litter worms, all sorts of jumpers. You got super reds, African night crawlers, European night crawlers, Indian blue worms. Um, Dude, they sound oh, like cannabis uh, they, cultivars. For real, man. <laughs> Got the, the strain name. Yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, but the most common um, around here are absolutely the red wigglers, which will stay on the top six to eight inches, like we said, as well as like the European night crawlers, which will dive down a little bit deeper and create those oxygen channels and allow the aeration and all that good stuff. But uh, those are the ones that we personally use at Wormies. But uh, there are a ton of uh, other species that are quote-unquote native there. You know, that they're not truly native, but they've been there for who knows how long. Uh, they were there well before we moved to the property. And so um, that's the benefit of us having our compost piles directly on the ground instead of up in these raised systems. Is like you let everybody come and go as they please, and like that's how you get maximum diversity instead of oh. up in an isolated you know, stainless steel table or whatever. But, um, yeah, for the common gardener, you're going to want to look for some uh, red wigglers and probably some European night crawlers. Um, since we don't really want to transport worms around, um, should we be trying to buy from other folks locally? I mean, like, like supporting your local economy is great. And, and, uh, and, yep. and, and, and that is my intention, but also at the same time, I know they sell a lot of different varieties on Amazon. Right. And, sure. and, you know, or, and other online places, not to like pick out Amazon, but the point is that yep. you can order them online. Right. Should we be avoiding buying them online at all costs or, you know, are are we probably generally safe to buy them online because the ones that are sold online <clears throat> are so common that if you're on a farm they're probably there already. Right. And so, I don't know, it kind of goes a couple ways. Um yeah, you want to support local as much as possible, but a lot of this stuff um when we're talking about composting and you know, IMO, indigenous microorganisms, it makes all the sense in the world, you know, to Buyer worms, one from a local business to support local and all that stuff, but two, you know, to get those IMOs. And so the worm pile that's in direct contact with the with the soil, like we do at Wormies, 
it's so much more than just worm castings and all the biology in the worm's gut. It's literally the indigenous microorganisms culturing in that pile too. And like, uh, it makes so much more sense for your garden to have, because like, you're not just getting a, a handful of worms when you order worms, there's going to be some substrate mixed in. And so like all the microbes that are still in that substrate are really going to add some benefit to your garden. But, um, Depends on where you're putting them too. If this is only going to stay in your indoor grow bin, um, in your indoor worm bin, uh, it probably doesn't matter as much. But you always want to be cautious about the invasive species thing. And like I said, the the main issue is doing this out in native, like old growth forests and stuff like that. But if you're in your city, if you're in your garden plot, um, they're they're not going to be terribly invasive. They're going to do a lot of of good work for you that will benefit you. You know, that whole idea of, um, you know, localized IMO kind of brought this idea into my head about like potentially wild crafting worms. I remember um, right before um, the pandemic, I was at uh, Indo Expo in Denver mm -hmm. and uh, <clears throat> I saw uh, Brian Waxman speak and he's got this great video that he shows on his Living Soil Talks where he takes um, half of an avocado. Uh, I think everybody calls it avocado tech now. But, yep. but uh, he'll take half of an avocado and he puts it at the top of his container and then he lifts off the avocado after you know some amount of time. And there's like a gazillion worms. Like all the worms in the container seem to have sensed the avocado fat and yep. they all come to it. And and his, his argument about it is that it's really good for feeding your worms, but also it brings them all in proximity so that they can mate yeah, and exactly. um so so that is kind of like a uh, that's an attractant for worms um is there any kind of you know application of that or something else that folks might do to wild craft your local worms that are going to have the local imo in their gut because like you know where i live on vashon island i could totally see going to the edge of my property where you know it's not all trampled and everything yep. and and you know, take two avocados and cut them in half, and I've, and put put four halves in a circle. Maybe maybe dig away the top layer a little bit, and like collect a bunch and start my either either start my bin or just collect them and put them in my containers. Um, like a is is that an environmentally sound practice? If as long as I'm on my own farm, and B does that work? And C, what attractant would you use? Yeah, so. Uh Try to remember all those there. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> all good. Um, yeah, avocado tech's great. It'll definitely attract a bunch of worms. That being said, um, it's a great use for like old avocados that you know are past the prime eating. But I don't really like the idea of you know buying an avocado from Mexico or whatever and like having that huge carbon footprint mm. just to to feed to the worm and like all that stuff on there. There's a, a ton of other stuff that we can use uh, that's going to have actually already your local IMO that you can use to bait those worms instead of microbes from Mexico or whatever. Can you and give so, me two uh, examples? Yeah, for sure. So up here, it's super, super easy to grow melons and squash, all sorts of gourds. And so like, that's huge. You get one squash plant and there's, you know, 20 plus gourds on there and they store super well. So you can, you know, have feedstock for eight months plus if you store it right. Um, but also that huge surface area. And so like you you slice up a pumpkin and you put it on top of the soil and all these these worms are gonna come up there 
um, very similar to the avocado. But also you can just use like wet cardboard and like any leaves from your property. Toss some leaves under some wet cardboard, set that flat, and after a couple days, if there's worms in your yard, they're going to be there. And they love that corrugated board, um, all those little perforations. Oh wait, they they're, e- they're eating it? They love like hanging out in the the ridges. It's crazy. Uh. Like you can peel back one of the layers, and like it's just full of worms and cocoons and stuff. They really like cardboard. It's weird, but um. So yeah, anything that's gonna be moist and flat, and they like some pressure against the soil, and so like they like to come up to the top. But you got to remember, worms don't like the sun. Uh, they're incredibly photosensitive, and so if you can, you know, cover your soil. Uh, with something firm like that, uh, that allows them to come up to the top but not be exposed to the elements, uh, they're they're really gonna like that. But um, yeah, the idea with the avocado tech is is wonderful. Um, you could use pumpkins, cardboard, melons, anything like that. But you're basically attracting them, and worms are hermaphroditic, and so they contain both the sperm and the eggs and that little slimy stuff that's on them. And so basically when you have them in a huge worm pile uh, all eating that avocado, they're also having like a giant orgy. And so they're going to leave behind a ton of cocoons. And and each one of those cocoons are anywhere from like 1 to 20 worms. And so you have like these huge population booms, huge baby booms after you have, um, after you do something like the avocado tech or you attract them all up to a, a common area and you feed them. But also... Um, it's popular to kind of amend that avocado uh, lightly with some amendments. And uh, so then they're taking those amendments as well as all the fat and all the good stuff in the avocado. And then when they be- go back and they disperse throughout the soil, then they're pooping out all that good stuff all throughout the rhizosphere. And so, like, it's a great way to amend your soil without tilling it in, you know? Yeah, for sure. You know, when when you talked about their the, the worm's ability to transport nutrients... I was thinking, oh, in my head, it was always just the mycelial networks, right? But but no, this is an entirely different and I would probably say more mechanical way um, when they are when they're eating the food scraps and then they grab some of the amendment and then they you know they bust out and go to another neighborhood in the in the container. They're yep. they're taking all of that with them. Yep. Um, any idea how much like like I'm I'm imagining taking like a melon or a squash like you example like you suggested and adding a little bit of amendment to it. Do we want to just add the like the amount like as if we were adding salt to eat it, you know, just a little bit or or can we actually add it pretty heavily? So, I definitely go light on any amendments and honestly, if your soil's thriving, you might not even need it. And so like it it's always kind of tough blindly amending things without looking at the soil test, but uh, if you just add a, a little bit of something, um, a lot of times just some trace minerals or something like that is all you need. But yeah, I usually go light on any dry amendments. Um, um, are there any? Are there, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Mainly just rely on heavy mulching, and that's uh, going to supply the fertility that I need in the soil. For folks like me who are not going to be able to not do this because it's such a cool idea, are there any amendments, like specifically dry amendments, that we should not use because worms do not like them? Um. Hmm. Yeah, cer- so, cer- certainly nothing significant, or else it yeah, yeah, right nothing, in your head. nothing yeah. straight comes to mind. But yeah, it's something to consider. You don't want something incredibly imbra- abrasive. Yeah. Uh, they don't like rubbing against. You know, diatomaceous earth, which yeah, I mean, right. that's good. Excellent but point. like, yeah. even like a uh, insect frass might 
you know, have that harsh, um, tiny little pieces that can cut them up. So if you do add some dry amendments, just, you know, go ahead and make a, a guacamole out of it. Mix mm-hmm. it in. Don't just have the, the dry amendments there. But, uh, yeah, I wouldn't worry too much about that. Right on. That, yeah, that guacamole idea is good. Uh, even even if you're using melon or squash, you know, yep. like make that make that slurry. For sure. And I also want to say, uh, if you're using a melon, um, don't use you know the whole entire fleshy part of it. Use mainly the rind. Um, mm. If you add too much of that fruitiness, you're going to attract some fruit flies and excess juice and stuff like that. So you mainly you can use some of the the red melon part, but mainly stick to using the rind. And that's a perfect use for. Your, your leftover melon rinds. Right on. That's a good example. All right. So let's talk more about um, like the putting them in the container. Um, so, so when I am in the garden and I see a worm that's at the surface, just kind of cruising around the garden, I generally pick them up and I toss them in one of the pots and and so if I'm doing that, um, I, I recognize that over time they will um, procreate and there'll be more of them. And that's great. But for when a lot of people are first starting their pots, we all know how aggressive people want to be with their first year pots, trying to make them be wildly bio- biologically active in the short summer yep. run, right? Like it's, it's unreasonable. Like, like I found that my pots really got good, like after three years, you know, yep. but, but that first year, everybody's trying to turn their, their often bagged soil into like, you know, this super living soil in one <laughs> run. And yep. so I'm sure that there are other people who, who have been tempted like I have to to either you know get worms from a friend or buy them online or or wildcraft them, which I actually hadn't considered until today. But the point is to get a bunch and put like a whole handful in one container. Can there be too many worms per pot? Yeah, so they're really good at uh, controlling their population, and they're not going to, you know, continue to reproduce if there's not enough food for them. Oh. But that being said, if we're trying to, you know, do no-till in a 30-gallon pot or a smallish pot like that, um, you don't want to, yeah, toss in handfuls of worms. You want to stick to maybe five, ten worms at first, and they'll, uh, they'll absolutely aerate it and, you know, start to reproduce and control their numbers there. But the problem is with no-till, uh, long term is it just turns into a, a bed full of castings and so uh if you don't have enough long term aeration sources uh it's everything in there is just going to turn into worm castings and so you don't really want to go over are we saying well, that's good or are we saying that's bad that's that's not uh super beneficial um, right so it's, it become, makes the soil out of balance exactly yeah. okay and uh it'll lead to compaction over time and stuff like that like you really need that aeration long term and these uh these raised beds. Um, and so something that I do is I add some, some aeration sources in between and just kind of let it settle in. And so, uh, we sell what we call vermi mulch at wormies and it's our thicker, um, grade of the compost. And so there, there's a ton of tiny little wood chips and, uh, like the, your eggshells and there's a ton of cocoons in there and, and worms and so many rove beetles, beneficial mites and and predators and shredders, shredders of all sorts, but um, that uh, all those wood chips are gonna settle down into the soil, and then I'll add some uh, crushed lava rock or or pumice every now and then, and just let that continue to settle in, instead of it only being 
worm castings and then only feeding it organic matter on top that's going to turn into worm castings as well. And so uh, something to consider. Yeah, so, it sounds like it's very important to consider, especially yep. if you are a long-term, you know, food or cannabis cultivator and you're doing, you know, no-till-minded stuff. Like the idea of there being potentially t- too much density of worm castings never occurred to me. And so, in addition to my regular like soil amendments, the idea of of adding. Um, you know, small wood fr- fragmentations and things like that to the top and just letting it settle in sounds like a great idea. Certainly, that's going to be awesome for your lower levels of the food web as well, because there's going to yep. be all these like little surface areas for um, for those little those little microbe guys. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. So um, so. So we're only going to be adding, you know, five or 10 for a 30 gallon pot and then let, let them like do their thing. Um, is there, do I need to also feed them in that? Like, can they, like, I understand that they might, um, you know, they won't have more babies if there's not enough food sources, but could, could the, could the 10 eat everything in the pot and then crash in it? where I should be thinking about putting food scraps on the surface of the container as well. I mean, I may, maybe it's putting in some scraps and then covering it with compost. So it's not open to the air, but the, the, the general idea of the question is, should I be thinking about feeding them in my container at all? Yeah. So I don't know if you're a fan of, of cover cropping or uh, mulching adding. Yeah, your, for sure. Yeah. So that's, that's all I do. I don't add any food scraps necessarily, but, uh, always chopping and dropping a ton of cover crops and, uh, you know, pruning any of the ganja leaves, tossing them in the soil, and they're taken care of, you know, within a, a week, they're usually gone. And so it's a, uh, there's a lot of hungry things in there for sure. <laughs> the, the, the pill bugs will take care of some, some leaves for sure. Um, so yeah, always feeding the soil with that mulch layer, keeping it protected and letting the worms come up to the top to eat that stuff. And so like, like we talked about earlier, we don't want a whole lot of exposed soil. Uh, we don't want uh, the worms to ever see or grow late necessarily. They, they like to stay in the moist, dark environment with the rest of the microbes. Mm-hmm. So um, let's say that I fill a container with um, sifted soil and um, I know there's no worms in it because I just sifted every square centimeter of the soil. Yep. Then mid-season, I see worms in the pot. Um, you know, I understand intellectually that that happened because there were uh, worm cocoons uh, in the soil. But um, is there is there any way to know how how dense soil is with cocoons already when you use it, or or do you just do you just have to like let it ride because there's no real, real I don't I don't think I've ever even seen one I don't even know what one looks like yeah so once you know what they look like they're a lot easier to spot uh, mm. like they're little orange goldish like little orbs probably oh. a, a millimeter or so but like you can take up a, a scoop of pretty much any handful of our compost piles at Wormies and you're gonna find at least one cocoon in there and uh, so once you get the eye for it uh, you'll be able to see them but that being said, it's still way easier to let that go through your sifter unnoticed. But um, I honestly, I don't know. I don't worry too much about the population of worms in the soil. I just know that there's some in there, and I keep them fed with the organic matter, and I uh, add that aeration source to prevent it from all turning into worm castings over time. 
but uh yeah i try not to to worry about it too much all right so um we've spoke earlier about how we don't want our worm bins to get too hot which we'll address again in third set but 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 thinking about the containers you know i intentionally am trying to have my plants and the containers warm right the container warm so that um you know, the microbes are happy and yep. aggr- aggressively living, shall I say. And then the plants, of course, I want them to be transpiring and aggressively living as well. But then there's worms, right? So um, uh, how much risk am I looking at having my containers out in full, you know, s- full summer sunshine Will the pot naturally keep the worms cool enough that they won't, you know, like melt? Um, or do do I need to be aware of that? No, it's a very important thing to consider. And uh, I don't like using black pots outside. Uh, I like the tan fabric pots. Mm-hmm. Um, keeps the soil a lot cooler. But really, really focusing on that thick mulch layer is going to do a lot to protect all your microbes and all uh your macro invertebrates and, and worms and whatnot. But um yeah, you, you definitely don't want them to to cook in there. And so if you have that pot right on the ground or if there's any holes in there or whatever, like worms are really smart. And so like you'll see if you were to put worms in a like a thermophilic hot compost pile, they're not gonna go right to the core. They're not gonna go to the hot part. They're gonna get the hell out of the way. They 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 know how to get away from the heat. And so if there's another option for them to get out, um, and that might just be them going up to the top and hanging out underneath that moist mulch or uh, all the way down to the bottom where it's still moist and, you know, like they're, they're going to find something around it. But yeah, you definitely don't just want a, a black pot out in the open sun with no mulch, no shade or anything like that. Um, yeah, yeah, we don't, yeah, we don't want them to melt. <laughs> yeah, right yeah, on. You always got to be mindful of what the soil wants, you know, and think, what, how are they going to prefer this? And so, like, that was a big thing, uh, realizing that I was more of, like, a microbe farmer than a worm farmer. I'm, I'm creating the perfect environments for these microbes to thrive, and from that, the worms follow, and, and all the good stuff follows. But, like, you need the the environment that's conducive for the microbes, and that's what starts it all, you know. Right on. So, so let's finish this set with, um, you know, what, what I'm guessing is a myth, but I've been told this since childhood and I, and there, I'm probably not the only one, so we might as well address it. If we have a worm and we cut it in half, do we then have two worms? And is there any reason we should be doing that? No, definitely do not do that. Um, worms are living, they're, they're sentient, they can feel that, um, and, and no, they don't regenerate into two completely different worms. Um, it is true that if you cut it at um, a certain point, and somebody's actually figured this out, there's like a number of segments that you can go to or whatever, and then that tail will regenerate, and one worm will be fine, but the other part will, will die off or whatever. But no, you're not going to regenerate two worms, but uh, if one does get cut, there is a good chance that It'll be fine. It'll regenerate. Right on. So if one gets cut, toss it back in the in the soil, but don't be doing it of your own accord. We are yeah. dispelling that myth right here and now. So for sure. <laughs> right so on. like that's one of the biggest predators of worms is humans. Or uh maybe not predators, but you know, uh 
with rototilling and stuff. And we come in and we just slice these worms up. And then if you're using salts, you're literally tossing salt on the wound. Oh, jeez. And, like, it, yeah, it's terrible what we're doing. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. All right. So we're going to take a short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is regenerative farming educator Chandler Michalski. Now, without these advertisers, Shaping Fire would not happen. So please support them and let them know you heard them on Shaping Fire. A fully functioning greenhouse grows extraordinary cannabis flowers that have exceptional bag appeal, great terpene profiles, and exceptional yield. But as we have discussed many times on Shaping Fire, a greenhouse is only as good as the environment you create for the plants inside. Biotherm has been on the forefront of developing and installing highly efficient greenhouse solutions since 1980. Whether new construction, major upgrades, or a retrofit, Biotherm's cultivation climate solutions are tailored to each grower's specifications. They even have root zone heating mats that attach to a home hot water heater for growing areas 500 square feet or smaller. The atmosphere of the growing environment directly affects the health and productivity of your crop. Biotherm offers heating, cooling, dehumidification, and CO2 enrichment to optimize the air your plants breathe and optimize plant growth by enhancing the elements within the cultivation space. Biotherm's dissolved oxygen irrigation solutions will improve the vitality of your water and the efficiency of your hydro delivery system. When you implement Biotherm's systemic innovation, you'll experience increased yields, improved plant vigor, and increased resistance to disease and pests. Biotherm offers free phone and email support for everything they sell and will help you troubleshoot and diagnose issues to get your equipment back online. The explosion of greenhouse cultivation has crowded the field with novice consultants selling unproven gadgets. When you choose Biotherm to regulate your greenhouse environment, you know you're relying on their over 40 years of experience designing, installing, and supporting mission-critical greenhouse technology. Your plants deserve nothing less than Biotherm. Visit BiothermSolutions.com today to learn more and request a quote. Once you've discovered the benefits of using cannabis, it's a very small step to start making your own edibles, gummies, lotions, tinctures, and concentrated oils at home. Magical Butter has been helping cannabis consumers become self-sufficient for over a decade. With the easy-to-use Magical Butter Countertop Botanical Extractor, you can create high-quality cannabis products to your exact specifications at a fraction of the cost of store-bought edibles. I talk a lot on this show about the importance of home growing so you don't have to rely on others to feel healthy. Well, the magical butter machine can empower your personal health by putting you in control of how you use cannabis in your daily life. I've been making my own butters and oils on the stove for years, and I much prefer the ease of using the magical butter machine. I just set it and walk away. With the simple touch of a button, the Magical Butter Machine grinds, heats, stirs, and steeps your herbal extract all at the correct time interval and temperature for the perfect infusion every time. As a result, you achieve your desired infusion easily, safely, and consistently. Check out the Magical Butter Instagram to see the machine in action. And don't feel like you have to go it alone. 
There is a huge community on Facebook called Magical Butter Users United, sharing recipes and best practices so you can learn at your own pace from others who are already doing it successfully. Now is the time to get your own Magical Butter machine and save money while enjoying cannabis. Use the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps, to get 10% off. Visit MagicalButter.com today. For years, organic cultivators have been looking for a peat moss replacement. Peat moss has long been the go-to soil amendment for water retention and container growing, but organic growers are recognizing now that peat moss is an unsustainable resource, and the mining of peat bogs destroys wetland habitats and releases sequestered carbon. But peat moss works so well that many have continued to use it. Now there is finally a revolutionary replacement for peat moss that provides better benefits while being a sustainable choice. Pit moss sounds and acts like peat moss, but instead of being mined from fragile ecosystems, is actually made from upcycled organic paper and cardboard headed for landfills. Pit moss is excellent at retaining water in your substrate and creating air pockets and tiny living environments for microbes. Pit moss instantly increases aeration, nutrient absorption, and water conservation too. Carefully and locally sourced, Pit moss is the result of decades-long research into the use of recycled paper fibers. Pit moss is lightweight and easy to use, and pit moss is inert, so it won't change your pH. Available in a range of preparations, including a nutrient-enhanced blend and an organic soil conditioner with no added nutrients. Pit moss is also available as an animal bedding for horses, chickens, and small animals. You can save 15% with the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps, when shopping on pitmoss.com. So go to pitmoss.com now to learn more. That's P-I-T-T-M-O-S-S dot com. Growing healthier, stronger, more sustainable plants. Pitmoss. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los, and my guest today is regenerative farming educator, Chandler Michalski. So before the break, you know, we were talking all about worms, the good they do, and why we love them. And um, no doubt, while their just very existence in our garden is good for pretty much everybody involved, um, we do tend to focus on their castings because of the nutrition value. But once you have castings, um, like what's the best thing to do with them? Because, um, you know, they kind of seem like a panacea that you can use them for everything. And, and I'm here to tell you the answer is yes. So, um, yep. we're going to go through, um, uh, some of the ways that, uh, Chandler uses them in his garden and, uh, maybe some of them, uh, will be attractive to you, dear listener. All right. So let's start with the basics. So, um, the, 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 First way that many people get into worm castings is simply by adding it to their soil recipe. Whatever yep. they're going to start out their pots with, they will have, you know, some variable amount of it that is locally purchased um, or gifted worm castings. So will you speak to that? Give us an idea of, of um, you know, maybe how we should choose our castings and then how much to put in the soil. Yeah, so that's what got me into this whole world is... Uh me starting to try to mix my own soil. I found sub uh, subcools super soil yep. recipe, and uh, you know, reading the forums, realized that the compost was the most important part, and that's why you know you can have the same recipe all over the country, but 
everybody's going to have different results because they're all using different compost. And so sent me down, you know, the, the rabbit hole of, okay, well, what's the best compost? And I quickly found out that worms produce the best compost or, or some of the best compost. And uh, it's pretty easy to do it at home in a home worm bin. So I started doing that, and I realized pretty quickly that I was eating like garbage, and I couldn't put anything beneficial into my worm bin. You, busy. you yourself were eating like garbage. Yeah, I was a so busy college you, student. Uh, and, so you, you couldn't know. put your food scraps in because the worms are like, screw you. This, I don't want chips. Yeah, I mean, just not enough fruits and veggies, not enough cooking for myself, and mm. so like that was a big red flag. It's like, holy shit, like that's not how we should be doing things. Um, I need to start taking better care of myself and, and cooking at home more. So quickly started to accumulate uh, more fruit and veggie scraps and feeding my worms really, really good stuff um, and getting, you know, the best compost possible. And so that was really fast. Like I said, I was just starting to learn how to mix my own soil, how to grow my own ganja and came into this world of, of worm castings and everything. And then, um, Hold on, before you move on, I think we need to recognize for a second there how kind of like naturally romantic that is that you yep. get into building soil to grow cannabis and then the worms support you in eating a healthier diet because you want to feed them a better diet. Like that's that's better nutri- that's better support for eating healthy than like even my friends give me because <laughs> because I'm I'm motivated to help the worms because I want them to help me with the ganja. I just think that that is a, a beautiful example about how regenerative farm really closes circles and yep. and um, uh, offers unexpected positive results. Oh, absolutely, man. Absolutely. It's a, it's a lifestyle for sure. Yeah. Super grateful to have found it. So how much, how much should we put into our, our soil recipes? Yeah, so we shoot for 20%. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want like 15 to 20%. Uh, there's been studies on it that show that that amount greatly uh, – improves yield and all that good stuff, uh, decreases pest and, um, pathogen uh, pressure, but, uh, anything over 20% and it might be kind of a, a waste of money. And mm-hmm. so, and if you really overdo it, then you can run into the compaction problems and all that stuff like we were talking about. And so, yeah, 15 to 20% if you're mixing your own soil, but then, uh, also really like top dressing it, uh, throughout the cycle. And so I'll just literally take a handful. I'm not big on measuring or anything. And, uh, you know, spread that around the base of each plant and water it in. And simple as that, maybe every other week or so, if you ever notice, you know, plants could use a little boost or something, maybe give them it that. But I really don't stick to any strict cycles or anything like that. But I know uh, pretty much if I ever see a problem, I'll just top dress some some castings and then brew a compost tea and uh, the problems are resolved pretty quickly. When you are top dressing worm castings, do you normally put down the worm castings and then um, either add an extra layer of soil or compost or scratch the surface and and work it in? So many of the top dressed amendments, you kind of need to keep them moist for them to break down and do their job. Is that also yeah. true with worm castings? I can't imagine that a dry worm casting is as effective as a moist one. Yeah, great point. So yeah, I'll scratch it in a little bit, but then the watering in after you you spread it pretty thin, mm-hmm. uh, we'll take a lot of that and uh, bring it, pull it down into the soil. 
So do you do you top dress additional? All right, so, so let's assume you have a new pot, right? And yep. you are using your twenty percent um, castings. Um, will that? Would you expect that to last the entire cycle, or would you still perhaps start top dressing more, like maybe when you start flower cycle or something? Yeah, so I, I usually at least do another top dress right as I flip, and so uh, and it also depends on how much you have and whatnot. But mm-hmm. uh, I'll yeah, generally, like I said, I don't stick to schedules, but I'll do at least one top dress during veg, and then uh, a nice top dress and chop and drop um when i flower and so that chop and drop is kind of what i use to cover up the castings instead of additional soil or compost i'll lay down the castings kind of scratch it in water it in and then chop and drop all my cover crop and print some leaves and then cover that up and keep it moist and protected Right on. So um, uh, the other time that it's very popular to top dress is actually between cycles, you know, um, whether you're indoors or if it's the off season, um, you know, we're all generally adding amendments to the soil preparing for the next cycle. Um, uh, If you are outdoors, it's a little less obvious as it is with indoors when to amend between cycles. So let's say that it is, you know, uh, October and everything is cut and hung. And um, I'm looking at my, um, you know, all the the, the stalks that are coming out of my um, containers. Would you be more likely to amend then and let it sit over the winter season that way? Or would you actually wait and amend in April or May in the spring after the winter? Uh, I do it in the fall. You Mm -hmm. always want to be building up that fertility and it's super important, especially for getting snow in the winter uh, to really build a, a thick, thick mulch layer to protect everything and sow some cover crop seeds underneath it. And uh, you'll actually have, and some cold tolerant plants, you'll have living plants underneath that thick mulch layer and they're still, you know, pumping exudates into the soil and keeping everything alive um, all winter long. And if you don't have that, if you have bare soil, it's all going to freeze. Every, everything's going to suffer. And then uh, you're going to have to re-inoculate and kind of start over in the springtime. So it's super important. Uh, we got to be mulching all year round, but uh, putting our beds to sleep properly um, in the wintertime is very important. Right on. That's never come up on the show before. You know, I always just considered that during the winter, the containers got so cold that all the micro microphones, all the <laughs> microbes sisted up and yep. essentially went into hibernation. But um, this idea that you know, there's still life happening in the container. And so we want to make sure we have a good mulch layer to kind of give it a winter blanket. And then, um, you know, castings and, and other nutritive amendments just to, you know, help keep the logs burning over the winter. That's a really interesting idea that I hadn't really engaged with before. No, and I used to definitely subscribe to that too. I, I figure that everything sisted up, went dormant for the winter yeah. and a lot of it would come back, but putting cover crop um, in my pots and a thick mulch layer. Um, I've got a post on my Instagram, actually some hairy vetch just thriving in, in early February. And it's so like, that made me realize, you know, okay, so 
there is still some sunlight getting through that mulch. It's still photosynthesizing. It's got to still be pumping, you know, some carbon into the soil, some exudates. And so, like, I don't know. It's I think for the most part, things are quite slowed down and dormant. But uh, really protecting it and, and doing all that stuff will just make everything thrive in the spring when when it does thaw and come back to life. And the, the hairy vetch that was, you know, doing its thing all winter long, um, it was the second. Um, okay, so it started going to flower, like, as soon as spring came and it attracted so many pollinators and uh your beneficial predators and all that stuff and so it's a yeah, beautiful thing right on all right so cool let's go to our next application so we've already talked about um as a soil amendment in your initial container recipe yep. and then we talked about um you know top amending both during the cycle and um during the off season let's yep. talk about adding it to compost tea so so like let's assume like there's a lot of different compost teas but let's let's assume for the moment we're talking about an aerated tea um made in you know one of the popular ways it, let's if we want to incorporate um uh, castings do we want to add it to the brewer or is it something we add to the add to it after we've pulled from the brewer yep uh so i like to use a compost tea bag and so like put all the compost inside of that mesh bag and then i'll put that inside of the brewer and you know, agitate it, really massage it, get all those microbes suspended and in the water, and then uh, I'll brew it. Um, depending on the recipe and whatnot, and I, I'm definitely still experimenting with compost teas, and it's kind of tough to know um, without looking under the scope. But basically, um, I've never brewed a compost tea using good compost that has had detrimental results you know and so like i think the microscope stuff is really important and if you have it and you have time to get into it uh there's a lot to learn from that but i think you know brewing a compost tea sticking to the rules uh, sticking to your your intuition um you're gonna have really good stuff if you're using good compost um kind of got distracted from the question there yeah right on but, but i'll take it to the net to the next part of the question then which is so we were talking about aerated compost teas and and you said okay we're going to put it in a bag so that the compost is not actually in the brewer causing a mess i'm guessing then that the next you know if you're using a compost extract, right? So, so we're not talking about an aerated preparation. We're just talking about like, like we make tea, right? We're or like, like tea to drink. You've got water and then you put a bag of stuff in it and it just soaks the tea yeah, out, it. right? Steep it, right? Like I'm, I'm pretty new to that kind of a compost extract. Um, but I'm finding that I really like it because it's so yeah. easy and, and, and so, so quick. Easy. Yeah. And so would, would it be simply you've got your um, your bag of compost in the bucket and then next to it you're going to have a bag of castings or if you've got a big enough bag you can both, both put them both in the same thing the moral of the story is is that it works the same yeah so i i only use castings in a compost tea pretty mm. much um yeah I, I don't use a separate compost source necessarily i don't know sometimes i'll like add in some leaf litter from the the forest but when i say compost tea i'm, I'm pretty much talking just a, a casting tea do you think it's complete like do you not do you really think that there's not really anything added 
by adding compost from your compost pile that it's that it's all there with the worms or i mean you've got to i mean you're clearly like think way too much about this stuff there's got to be a reason why you don't bother so i i use the vermi mulch more than the castings and so this is you know it's a something local to wormies and a lot of people aren't familiar with it but it's just the the coarser sifting and so it's still got all the worm castings but it's got all the the wood chips and everything that we're talking I see. about and so like our worm our worm rows um are fed thermophilic compost and so like it's already gone through the hot composting process and then so you have all that diversity and then the worms are working through it and then we add all these mushroom blocks and bokashi compost and uh fermented tea and, and fruit from kombucha places and so like we re-inoculate the hot compost with as much diversity as possible and let the worms work through it for like 10 months and so yeah you're, have, so you're not using just like regular pedestrian yeah. um castings exactly. you're so, using like olympic level castings that's a great thing to consider and that's a something that is easy to forget when we're talking about this stuff it's like not everybody has access to wormies or whatever and we're talking about maybe just using worm castings from your worm bin and so like yeah if that's the case you might want to go ahead and add some compost from your outdoor source as well and just maximize that diversity and uh but uh yeah the the vermi mulch from wormies is complete for sure it's right on. Uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, more more people than than we probably even think about who are growing in urban situations, the the castings they're using, they're just like straight up buying online. So it's they're stripped down like nutritive but kind of like boring and maybe not well clearly not as complex as what you're using. Yep. And uh for those people, I think that it would make sense to back up their um, their castings with a, a a biologically active mulch as well, or absolutely. Compost. That's yeah. a great point. All right, yeah, thank you. All right, cool. So, um, so let's talk about the ways to uh, apply this. So, like like most nutrition, I would think that um, it's beneficial to both pour the compost tea directly into the container or bed. Um, but then also there is a foliar option. Is, is is it true that really we can we can do both? Yeah, for sure. And so uh, the difference between the tea and the extract is you're aerating the tea and you're adding a food source for those microbes to proliferate and expand. Um, but in the extract, you're just extracting what's available in the compost and putting it into a solution. So you're not actually giving it an air source and a food source to increase its population. But uh, you're just you know taking the microbes that are there, putting it in a, a solution, and then you can water your plants with that, or you can spray your plants with that. But uh, one of the benefits of a compost tea um, is the foliar application. And so, like um, the glomulin, the glue-like substance that a lot of these bacteria produce, um, is going to make it a whole lot stickier. And so, like when you spray an actively aerated compost tea, it's going to have more of that glomulin more of that stickiness to it. And so like that's going to stick to your leaves longer than a compost extract would. But uh, if you only have time for a compost extract, if you don't want to clean your brewer or whatever, it's so much easier. It's uh, but uh, So you want to use maybe a couple cups um, for a couple gallons in your uh, compost tea, but in your extract you're going to want to use a whole lot more compost uh, than you would in a tea. And so like you want to really fill up your mesh bag or whatever um and 
massage that around. Use more compost and an extract than you would in a tea. So when using foliar, um, I got to admit that I've never done in um, castings foliar because I'm hesitant because I know that it's air quotes poop and and you know we normally want to keep manure off of the tops of the plants because of things like E. coli and stuff. Do we need to be concerned about spraying worm waste on the tops of the plants? Yeah, so that's you get into this tough area of like generalizing all castings and we know that's not true. Like they uh, are totally different from different sources and different parts of the country, different feedstocks, different environments and stuff. Uh, it's not the same. It's, it could be comparing like apples and oranges, honestly. And so if you have uh, a compost that isn't complete and they were using some animal manure and stuff like that, uh, you're going to maybe run into more problems than, um, compost that you fully trust but i have never run into any issues um with using a a good compost and and spraying it directly on the leaves but that being said i don't spray any uh compost teas or or manures or anything um in flower at all it's all during veg so it sounds like there if you're gonna foliar you don't want to take your castings right out of your bin and use them you want to make sure you take them out of the bin and then compost them so they become a finished balanced compost product yeah that's not a bad idea um and also like the aging process is really important and so like we think okay all the food scraps are gone this compost is done let's use it but if you're to actually let that compost sit there uh, for like six months and just keep it moist Um, you let it cure up and you let all those mesophilic microbes work through it and even though you you can't necessarily see a whole lot of change um, they're they're doing their thing and they're uh, continuing to cure it up into a a better product (laughs) like like ah this is vintage worm compost (laughs) this is age age you know from free range worms (laughs) that's awesome um uh so another issue with foliar with amendments is uh sometimes the nozzles get clogged up so if we are going to run a uh casting um, uh, tea, um, should, we're, we probably should run it through, um, some filters to get out any loose bits, right? So it doesn't, uh, clog up the sprayer. Yep. Definitely. What do you recommend to put it through more than cheesecloth or is that like, you know, eight thick cheesecloth going to do it? Yeah. Uh, some cheesecloth folded over itself is, is pretty good, but, uh, honestly the compost tea bags that you brew right in are, yeah. are usually good enough. Um, but it's really important to clean out both your brewer and your sprayer and everything right after uh, to prevent biofilm from accumulating and, and drying there because it's a whole lot harder to clean once it's dry in all those nooks and crannies than uh, if you were to just you know pump some water and maybe some Dr. Bronner's through it right away or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any um, are the are the organisms the target organisms that we're looking to get out of the castings tea are are they going to be susceptible to damage from high pressure 
um, foliar sprayers. I'm just learning about this, so I don't know a ton about it. But but there's certainly a um, you know a higher end foliar sprayer that um, can really wreak havoc on microbes if it's used. And so I think you probably know what I'm talking about more than I do. Yeah, exactly. Um, definitely something to look into. Uh, if you ever buy like a pack of nematodes, um, they'll say it's like don't exceed 72 PSI and make sure that your nozzle's over like 0.8 millimeters in diameter or something like that. But, uh, I don't know. I talked to the bug lady, Suzanne yeah. Wainwright Evans. She's like, Oh yeah, it's, it's definitely not that strict. You have some more leeway there, but you definitely don't want, um, crazy high pressurization and you don't want like micronization or whatever because it'll just shred up like the nematodes and some of like the larger stuff, the bacteria will still get through, but, uh, it lowers the efficacy of like what's going to be surviving once it hits the leaf, you know, <laughs> but yeah, um, we use grow King, a garden sprayer and I know there's other options out there. I'm not trying to give advertisement or whatnot, but there was this gun that, uh, Luis, the, the owner of Wormies, um, was recommended through, um, the soil food web Academy and Dr. Elaine and stuff. I, I forget the name of the gun, but, there's definitely some stuff out there um, that is proven to work for sure. Right on. Um, I want to go back to a question that I missed. Um, you know, a lot of folks who do not live rurally, they are buying their inputs, um, you know, at stores and stuff because they're not able to wildcraft it. And, you know, we learn over time that, for example, you don't want to be buying um, compost in bags that, um, smells like bleach, right? There's just different, there's different, you, you want fresh, fresh yep. amendments. Um, is there anything that we should be looking for when buying bagged, um, castings that we want to avoid? Um, are there any clear signs of like spoiled castings? So, yeah, I, I definitely don't recommend buying castings that have been sitting on the shelf. I know sometimes that's your only option, but at that point, it's, I don't know, it's more of like a place filler than anything, you know, like compost should really be a microbial inoculation more than anything. It's like, yes, it's going to provide some nutrients, but it's really providing the microbes that your soil needs to take care of itself, you know, and so like, uh, that's what's great about wormies is you can come, you know, get it straight from the farm, never put it into a bag, or when we do bag it, it's usually gone within that week. And so like nothing dries out. It doesn't go dormant. Uh, it's in breathable bags. And so like highly, highly recommend, you know, finding somebody that's composting around you or doing it yourself. Um, because the stuff that you get on from the grocery store that's sitting in a bag, uh, who knows how long it's been there. Uh, who knows the feedstock that they fed that stuff with. It could have just been, you know, newspaper and cardboard and, yeah, you get a, a homogenous product, it looks the same every time, some growers are used to it, but like, what benefit is that actually adding? And so like, it's really nothing compared to living, breathing microbes from fresh compost, you know? Yeah, yeah, I follow that. Um, for those of you who aren't sure where you would get it because you live in the city, um, I would recommend also checking your farmer's market. Yep. Uh, I was very happy to find that um, this year our farmer's markets just started back up here on Vashon. Nice. And one of my favorite um, uh, organic food purveyors, um, they've got... Um, 
castings there at the end of their table now, and I get awesome. five pounds for ten bucks, and that's, awesome. that's double great because they're local, right? So they're they're all imbued with our local island IMO. So. Yep. Um, I will. I will probably buy them out for the season. So. For real, man. Sounds like <laughs> you got the hook up there. Yeah, totally. but yeah, that's the thing too. Is like a lot of people don't necessarily advertise this. They don't have a, a vermi composting business. But there are some heady people out there for sure that you know might have enough to share. And that's just the power of community and you know getting out there and connecting with these cool people because there are really really cool people like minded cool like minded people out there. But a lot of times we're just spread pretty far. Um, but bringing us together in the community and stuff is super important. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk about the compost cup later, but it's <laughs> so important to, to network and find these cool people out there. Yeah. Right on. All right. So let's finish up this, uh, this set with talking about, um, natural farming ferment. So pretty much everybody who is going to be using the castings from the show is, is got, you know, going to be using natural farming preps or, you know, KNF preps specifically. And, um, you know, I'm sure that there are some people who are, are thinking to themselves, you know, will any of my preparations, um, hurt the worms or not play nice with the castings. And I'm assuming since they're all in the same food web, we're good, but we should really address that. So will you, will you speak a little to it? Yeah. Um, so you don't want to overdo anything like we we're talking about. And so like, I don't know, I use some KNF preps. I use some Jadam, use, you know, a little bit of, of everything that resonates with me, but I mainly just focus on, you know, mulching heavily inoculating with as much diversity as possible and just like taking care of the soil and letting the soil and the plants figure it out. So like strategically you don't use as many inoculants as others would, but specifically to the question, um, these, these natural ferments, so long as you, you know, use as directed, like, you know, one 500, one a thousand, you know, as long as you're using yep. them at the proper strength, they're, they're not going to, they're not going to mess with the worms, right? No, no. Right. At, at that level, it's like homeopathic almost. And like, right. I, I really like that. Just like less is more. And, um, and a lot of the, the situations, but, um, a lot of people get into this KNF stuff and they're like, okay, this says one to a thousand, you know, let's do one to 500, like let's double it up. And, uh, because that's a very American way of thinking, you know. But, uh, I, I, dude, I can, I have to cop to that. That's yep. that's me. I have to constantly not add more of stuff. Yep. I'm like, oh, if if one to thousand is great, one to two hundred must be five times as good. <laughs> For real, <laughs> it's like totally uh, no, not that's, true. That's working against nature. Yep. Or like just spraying FPJ or fermented fruit juice or something without balancing it out first. And like, there's a a whole lot to these schools of thoughts that you kind of got to know pretty much all of it to understand why it works. And so like when you just hear one thing and yeah, you go for that, um, it might not necessarily be the whole picture and you, you could, uh, mess something up and then say, Oh, well, K enough doesn't work or something like that. But yeah, like, that's, you a, didn't, that's yeah. classic bro science right there. <laughs> for real, Absolutely. <laughs> this is one of the reasons why I, I'm not that great of a baker. Like I'm a killer cook. I do magic yep. in the kitchen, but 
But with baking, it's not about iron chefing until you're already like really good at baking, right? When you first start baking, you have to follow the recipe. And like, I seem to have like a total inability (laughs) to follow the recipe. And so like, I generally buy or trade for my breads because, um, you know, actually, I kind of wish that it was like, um, you know, in The Matrix, when uh, when, he, when he plugs in the program, he's like, I know Kung Fu, you know? Yep. I just wish I could plug in baking, right? Because Absolutely. Because a, a good baker, it takes some dedication and development of skills before you can kind of iron chef it. Like, you know, and like, I, I'm at such a novice level with baking that I, it demands that I um, measure everything. Because I I have not earned my right to eyeball things for sure, and I see a lot of similarity with that and and composting or growing or whatever. It's like when you first start off, yeah, you can find there's some pretty strict guidelines out there, and you might want to stick to them at first until like you have a baseline of understanding, you know. And then once you understand, you know, why everything's doing what it's doing, like then you can start to experiment a little bit more. But uh, like for example, a lot of home worm bin owners will like look up directions and stuff and say, Oh, I absolutely can't put any citrus in there. No onions, you know, no, you know, there's, there's all sorts of, of rules out there. But like, once you understand your worms and your bin and everything, like, yes, you can put maybe a little bit of something like that in there, but like, you don't want to fill up the whole entire thing with any of those. And like, you want to understand like the basic principles of uh, like covering up your scraps and stuff like that to avoid, getting fruit fries but um yeah once once you uh stick to the baselines for a little bit and then get some understanding then you can go off in your own and start to experiment a little bit and do some cool stuff right on that's an awesome summary all right so let's go ahead and take our second short break and be right back you are listening to shaping fire and my guest today is regenerative farming educator chandler michelski One of the challenges with buying autoflower seeds is that often you'll have as many different phenos as you will have seeds in a pack. That can be fun, sure, but so many varieties in one pack is a sign of an immature seed line that hasn't been worked enough. I prefer my autoflowers to be worked enough that each pheno in the pack really captures the aspects that the breeder was intending. This is why I recommend Gnome Automatics to my friends and listeners who grow automatic flowering cannabis seeds. Gnome Automatic seeds are not just crossed and released. They are painstakingly sifted again and again, tested in a wide range of conditions, and taken to a level of maturity that each plant will be recognizable by its traits. Traits that were hard-earned, so that you can have your best growth cycle ever. Gnome Automatics became a trusted and loved brand in cannabis over the last 10 years as Mandalorian Genetics, and recently changed their name to Gnome Automatics. The only thing that has changed is the name. Founder Dan Jimmy continues to pour his passion of breeding cannabis into every variety he releases for you to grow. Check out the Gnome Automatics Instagram at gnome underscore automatics to see the impressive plants folks are growing. You can score Gnome Automatic seeds in feminized or regular at your favorite seed provider listed in the vendor section of their website. Farms interested in bulk seeds of more than a 1,000 should reach out through the website, too. While on the website, be sure to check out the Gnome Automatics shirts and other merch section. 
If you want reliable seeds, hand-built from effort, expert selection, and experience, choose Gnome Automatics. There are a lot of good people launching new businesses in cannabis, psilocybin, and other psychedelics, and it's a very strange time for us. In the same moment that psilocybin mushrooms are illegal at the federal level, they are becoming increasingly legal in states across the country. These businesses leading the way into the future of plant medicines require specialized legal representation by attorneys who have depth not only in litigation, mergers, and acquisitions, but also in psychedelic and other plant medicines. Greenlight Law Group has been empowering cannabis businesses since 2014, and as the market has diversified into psilocybin and other plant medicines, Greenlight has been right there, evolving with their diverse clients to provide legal expertise with a high level of legal acumen, creative strategy, and precision that comes with an intimate and specific understanding of both business law and plant medicine. If you are a business owner trying to navigate the layered local and national drug laws on your own, you are at risk of fumbling. These confusing and quickly changing laws complicate everything. Greenlight Law Group is ready to help you when hit with a lawsuit, or because you were shafted by a vendor or business partner, or simply because you want to stay legal and could use some preventative guidance before cultivating a controlled substance as an entrepreneur. Greenlight Law Group is a collection of folks who care profoundly about their work, and I know this is true because I know the folks from Greenlight. There is a huge difference between a big legal firm who has decided to start representing a few drug companies versus working with a collection of high-integrity, passionate lawyers who are personally interested in new plant medicines and firmly believe in their power to heal. Contact Greenlight Law Group today and learn more about the services they can offer your industry-leading cannabis or psychedelics company. That's Greenlight Law Group at greenlightlawgroup.com. As cannabis regulations become more demanding and consumers become more educated, it is increasingly important to avoid the use of chemical pesticides when cultivating cannabis. Beneficial insects have been used for decades by the greenhouse vegetable and ornamental plant industry, and today many cannabis cultivators are moving from sprays and chemicals to beneficial insects. Copert has the beneficial insects, mites, and nematodes, microbials, sticky cards, and air distribution units you need to partner with nature to defend your garden. Whether you manage acres of canopy or have a simple grow tent in your home, Copert is ready to help answer your questions and help you transition away from chemical sprays towards clean and natural solutions. Since 1967, Copert has assisted growers in identifying pests and devising reliable solutions while providing healthy insects and mites that will protect your yield. Since the 1990s, Copert has been a leader in cannabis pest and disease control worldwide and have highly trained consultants to assist you in Canada and the United States from coast to coast. With their global network of grower support, Copert can help. Visit copert.com, choose your country, and get detailed information. That's Copert, K-O-P-P-E-R-T dot com. For the most up-to-date cannabis-related biological control information, you can also check their Instagram at Copert Canada. You know getting away from pesticides is good for health and good for business, and Copert is ready to help. Visit Copert.com today.
Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Los, and my guest today is regenerative farming educator Chandler Michalski. So during the first set, we talked about the greatness and epic nature of the worm and how we can work well together. During the second set, we talked about how to use the castings and various applications in our garden so that we can get that um, nutrition into the soil. Um, and you know, many people will just stop there and be thrilled um, because they will have a source for, um, you know, the castings either from a local organic farmer or, you know, they, they'll find some like crazy hippie selling them online that they'll become friends with or whatever. Um, or, or you know, you can, you can get them as a gift from somebody locally. But um, for many of us, uh, especially if you have got a large cultivation situation going on, um, you're probably already thinking about setting up a worm bin. You're all like, I need to produce this black gold on my own property and then, you know, inoculate it with your own IMO that you produced on your property. And um, set three is for you. So there is no doubt that, you know, an entire show could easily be done just on best practices for making a worm bin. And that is not what we're doing today. The goal is for people who are considering making a worm bin to, at the end of this set, you will have a better understanding of what it will require. And you'll probably have enough, um, you know, basic information to go for it. But really, we just kind of want to give you a taste of, of what the complex, the level of complexity of it. So you can like either A, decide if or if you want to do it or not. And, but then also, you know, People like us, when we get around for dinner parties, this is the kind of stuff we talk about. <laughs> and like your next, your next, like you know, farmer dinner party, if they're talking about worm bins, you'll know what the hell's going on. So, so you know, take this information as you will. But, um, but we understand it's not going to be like a complete set of information. So, with that, um, Chandler, um, back to the worm species discussion. So yep. if we're, we're talking about the worms in the soil, um, just like cruising around being worms, there seems to be a lot of variety of the kinds of worms that we can just toss into the container. Um, is that the same when setting up a bin or is the bin more related to using one particular species? Yeah, so you can use night crawlers in these bins, but I I don't really like doing that. They like to go down deep, like up to like twelve, fifteen feet deep, and they obviously can't do that into a bin. So like, I'd much rather use the red wigglers, who only stick to that top six to eight inches, which is pretty much all that you're going for in a worm bin, anyways. And so for like enclosed worm bins, I think red wigglers are probably the way to go. Um, is there a particular place that one sources those? I mean, if there, if you know somebody with a worm bin, um, you know, what, if they, if they give you a couple cupped hands full, is that going to be enough to start your own? Or do you need like a bunch where you need to like order them from a worm bin starter company kind of thing? No, uh, popular, uh, weight to sell them in as in half pounds or pounds. And so a pound is usually considered like a thousand worms. And so that's a great way to start a worm bin. And uh, they will regulate their their population and stuff based off of what you're putting into it. But a, a pound of worms is usually uh, the ideal start. All right. So if if, if we want to have a worm bin and we want to be producing enough castings 
um, for our own cultivation needs for the season. Now, if, if somebody is thinking about selling these, um, there are whole different sources about scaling up, and that's not what yep. we're talking about today. Yep. Um, but but uh, how big of a bin am I likely to want if I am a like just a home grower? Um, let's say. Yeah, I know this is not a legal number, but let's just say under 20 plants, right? Yep. If you, let's say you're a home grower under 20 plants versus um, somebody who's more commercial scaled where you're talking like 100 and above, right? Yeah. So, so what, what are the differences in sizes so that we can wrap our heads around that? So it's going to be tough to uh, supply 100 plants you know, all year if you're doing indoor and whatnot. Um, unless you have a pretty big scale. And so like, uh, that's one of the biggest things with worm bins is a lot of people get one to try to compost all their food scraps or all their garden waste. And like, that's pretty limited. You don't want to pack it full. You don't want to overfeed your worms. And so like, ideally most people should have a regular compost pile out in their backyard as well as a worm bin. And so like, then they can take, you know, just the best organic food that they have or whatever, just the, the highest quality stuff, put that in the worm bin and then they can put the rest out into the, the actual compost. And then you can mix the, the final products or whatever. And that's going to be a lot better um, for these large scale to uh, have enough compost without, you know, being full-time worm farmers. Uh, how how yeah. what's the physical size of a worm bin like two by three yeah it's a good size uh pretty common to use um your your rubbermaid totes or whatever a uh, great diy solution Oops, sorry about that um so yeah you can use a little two by three tote anything similar to that size but um some popular like worm towers are out there and those are only maybe two by two and uh i personally like the continual like flow through systems like the urban worm bag is a good one and you just constantly f put your scraps on top and all the castings are on the bottom and then you can actually harvest from the bottom there um separate your worms that sounds worms super convenient yeah um there's pros and cons to different at home methods but i think um understanding that you're probably not going to be able to compost all of your waste through your worm bin is an important realization. It uh, sounds like you, you can't really go wrong either too. Or, you know, just a, a cold compost pile outside as well as a dedicated worm bin. It, it doesn't sound like you can really go wrong either. Like whether or not you use the bag or you build like a fancy wooden box or you use like a plastic tub, your, um, your setup costs are really low and, um, so just like get something and start with something. And then as you get more sophisticated, you'll learn more what you want for your next one. Yep. I, I love that. And just getting like, don't be intimidated with any of this stuff, you know, just start somewhere, start with what you have and make the best out of it. And then over time you can, you can upgrade and stuff like that. A lot of people think, oh, I just got to wait until, you know, I, I have everything I need and, which is true about some stuff, but there's a lot of things in this gardening and, and composting that you really can just, you know, connect some food with the, the ground outside or whatever and start stuff starts to happen. Most of us probably have those black and yellow bins on the property, and yep. that's what I'm going to use. So, <laughs> Perfect. Right on. So um, I, I know that the location of the... Um, 
uh, of the bin on the property is important because we don't want to cook it. Kind of like when you um, inoculate uh, wood chips and you're going to grow mushrooms on your property, you're kind of looking like at the edge of the property near the trees where it's going to be a little cooler. Um, exactly. Where is that the same kind of place where we're going to want to put the worm bin? Because um, I, I, we're probably all going to want to put it like on our deck right next to the kitchen. And I, and I can imagine that might not be the best place. Yeah, it might be convenient. Um but yeah, you definitely want to keep it out of direct sunlight and um, keep it in the the moisture in the shade. If you got a tree line, you know, keep it just to the north of the the trees on the, the south side of your property. Keep it nice in the shade. Um, that's just going to help out everything. You're not going to have to add water. It's not really beneficial to, you know, pour water over your worm bin. Um, and you never want like excess water. I don't know how this became such like a common thing, but people think that. Uh, a healthy worm bin should have like leachate. It should have excess water coming out of the bottom, but that's really not the case. Um, if you have a lot of excess water coming out, you're you're probably doing something wrong. But uh, that being said, moisture is absolutely vital. You gotta remember, like you're creating the environment for the microbes, and they need that bit of biofilm to you know swim around in. They move around a whole lot faster, and they can set up their their colonies and everything if there's a little bit of moisture to it. And so uh, you really want to maintain the, the moisture of your worm bin. If it dries out at all, uh, the microbes are going to cyst up, and then when the conditions are right again, they're not all going to come back, and so you're going to lose some diversity. And it's, uh, like we said, it, it's a time-consuming process, and you can't put all your scraps in there already. And so you really want to be you know, speeding up the process as much as possible, and so you can... Uh, you know, feed your worms as much as possible. And so a great way to do that is by reducing the the particle size of uh, your feedstock. And so the more surface area you have, uh, the more inoculation points for all your microbes. And so it's going to be a lot easier for your microbes to get in and soften things up, break things down, and then your worms to come in and eat those microbes. Um, so blending your food scraps is huge. It'll save so much time. Um, but again, this is like for that next level soil nerd who's like, okay, yeah, I'm going <laughs> to put all my vegetable scraps into the, the food processor before I put them in my worm bin. It's like, I don't know, it's just a whole other intentional thing, but uh, you'll really decrease the amount of time it takes. Yeah, it, that sounds like a best practice that you might not have to start with at day one, but um, you'll find a huge increase in benefit from that, that small action. For sure. And yeah. uh, freezing them, too, is another popular thing. Uh, you know, if you're only one person or a small family, you can accumulate your food scraps. Um, if you have any extra freezer space, uh, put them in the freezer. And then that freeing or that freezing and thawing will actually like break down the, the cell wall and we'll let those microbes get in there a whole lot faster and speed everything up. And so that's a common question, you know, for wintertime up here in Michigan and in these cold areas. It's like, oh, can I still compost? It's like, yes, you should still, you know, accumulate your, your scraps. No, they're not going to break down. Um, yes, they're going to freeze, but then they're just sitting there and waiting for the spring and it'll all be good. Yeah, and it's a great location to store them. Yep.
Yeah. So, um, so when you first get your bin, um, what do you want to put in there? Like, you know, generally food scraps. Okay. But, but like, I've just started my bin, right? So are you, uh, you know, do you suggest that we save our food scraps for a week or two before we get our hands on the worms? And I also see a lot of people that have got newspaper in their bins. Is that like training wheels for a worm bin? Like break this down for us. Yeah. So newspaper is good if you don't have um, compost, but I'd much rather my worms just be in, in compost and eating all those microbes than in newspaper, you know, shredded paper or anything like that. Um, if you have, you know, access to a, a ton of newspaper, which I don't even know who does anymore, like, I don't know where they're printing papers still, but <laughs> um, yeah, that'd be great. You shred that up and the worms love that as a bedding, honestly. But, uh, I highly recommend using some compost in your bin and then adding your food scraps. And just like any compost um, or any organic matter, there's a a carbon to nitrogen ratio to consider. And so you don't want, you know, all your nitrogen-rich food scraps, you know, just sitting on your bin and becoming this sloppy, wet mess. Um, You really want to balance that out with the dry, carbon-rich brown material. And so, um, like, shredded up cardboard is wonderful. Uh, shredded paper is, is a part of the the solution, but I think using compost that has you know wood chips and all your twigs and stuff like that, uh, you're going to get so much more diversity. And also, um, a lot of people think, okay, I got this worm bin; it should just be a monoculture of worms. But like, that's really not the most healthy worm bin either. You should have all sorts of soil mites in there, uh, predators and shredders, uh, and quality stuff. You'll get some rove beetles come in and and pill bugs and all sorts of diversity that you know a lot of people if you're just beginning uh might freak them out because they're just expecting to see worms but all those other guys are very very helpful very beneficial if we're looking to start or inoculate a bin would it be reasonable just to take like one of our containers from last year and dump that in the bin we already know that it's living soil that's super biologically active yep yeah, yeah so that would be a great way to go yeah absolutely how how high on the on the bin or container do we want to put compost like i've seen many people's bins that look kind of sad and they there's only like this you know one or two inches of like paper and old melons and stuff in it and i'm yep. all like that does not that looks kind of sketch but in my head sure. i picture like a plastic bin that's like a third or halfway full and then when i get the melon rind or whatever i'll you know pull pull some of the soil to the side put the melon and then cover it back up like yep. but i'm making this up i don't even know if this is true so does that make sense yeah, for sure. So, like I said, if you're using the red, red wigglers, they're not going to really like anything deeper than eight inches. And oh, so that's going to yeah. be probably about as high as you want to go um, until, and so it depends on how often you need to harvest your castings or whatnot. Like you could just let it all turn to castings on the bottom and continue to, to feed on top and fill up the whole entire bin, you know, and harvest it way down the road. But uh, if you need those castings right away, then you might not want to continue to, uh, to add fresh stuff on top. Um, so my next part is the harvest. So so how do we, like in my head, the worms are cruising around in the compost and they're leaving castings, but the 
castings are mixed in with the compost. So am I going to harvest the entire bin and re- and then like start it again like I would do with like a compost brewer? Yeah, so um, this is where multiple bins comes into to play. And mm. so like over time, you'd stop feeding uh, your one bin fresh scraps. Or if you have like the vertically integrated system, you'd uh, start feeding that top one the fresh scraps. And so like all the worms on the bottom bin would go up through those holes in that top bin and they'd find the fresh scraps, and then, in theory, all the 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 bottom bin would be void of worms, or most of them would, would be on the top bin. But, uh, yeah, different ways to do it, for sure. I, That's I think- really cool and novel, man. I, I, like, um, I'm realizing that there is a whole... There's a whole new world that I'm about to be putting <laughs> yeah. onto. I mean, the fact that people are stacking bins and putting holes in one so the worms naturally migrate. I mean, that's just cool. Yeah, for sure. And uh, you'll find a couple different models like that. I have the Worm Tower or Worm Factory 360 or something like that. But it's just basically a worm tower. And really, you only need, you know two bins that stack on top of each other you'll find some models that have like five and it's like yeah there's i don't know it gives you more options i guess but i really only need two one to kind of let it cure up and then one to start feeding and all those those worms would migrate up but uh if you're just going to sift them you can peel them out by hand but also like we we're talking about earlier the avocado tech or any method to lure those worms up you know you put a a fresh uh, piece of pumpkin on there and damn near all the worms in your bin are going to be up there. And then you could just scoop them out in a handful or two and move them where they need to go. So that's a great harvesting method. Right on. So, um, uh, is there a particular like website, um, or a forum for people who like me are now all jazzed about this? Is there like, like, like I, I searched before we talked and there is lots of information all over the place. And, and, and like we know about cannabis, um, your mileage may vary on the quality, right? Yep. Um, yep. Is there a place that, that you recommend that people go to learn more um, if, if they've gotten all jazzed by this worm bin idea? Yeah, for sure. Um, Rhonda Sherman is one of the leaders in vermicomposting. She's a uh, a true worm expert, vermicomposting expert. And she uh, has this website here. It's a bunch of random letters. It's an educational one, but composting.ces.ncsu.edu. And there's a whole page on both home and backyard composting, which are, are, I mean, home and backyard, uh, as well as large-scale composting. And so ton of information there and a lot of the times um it's hard to differentiate you know if this knowledge is for larger scale or if this is really intended for uh your backyard small scale and so like this page has all that information there easy to break down and navigate through it so highly recommend looking at awesome good plug and um and and if you're like driving or something um don't get in a crash. That link, yeah. <laughs> that link is going to be on the episode page at uh, shapingfire.com. So you can just go over there and click on it. Perfect. So, um, so in wrapping up Chandler, you know, one of the first things that I learned about this, 
Well, actually, the funny thing is, is like you told me that actually we we knew about each other before I realized that we knew about each other because I I thought I found out about you first when I saw advertisements for last year's Michigan Compost Cup. But then when I went to email you to invite you to be on the show, your email was and you're like, oh, no, man, like I won a Shaping Fire contest. And and so like I I hadn't remembered that we interacted and and you got something from Shaping Fire, which was cool. Absolutely. But, But for me, like... I, last year, when you guys did the Compost Cup in Michigan, as as many people know, I'm from Michigan, even though I live on Vashon Island in Washington now. And I'm like, oh, that would be so great to go, um, you know, back home for. And and so after that, I just kind of liked, you know, everybody involved with the can the Compost Cup, just yep. so I could see what cool stuff y'all were doing. Um, so I want to give you this opportunity to plug the Michigan Compost Cup so that all the listeners in the Midwest like might want to go, you know, have some community and stuff. So so go Hell ahead yeah. and plug before we wrap up. Awesome. It is uh, the gathering of the soil nerds. It's just a celebration of soil and life. And it's just a wonderful uh, two and a half day event. We're going to have hands on demos. Um, still figuring out what we're going to do this year, but probably going to be building some Hugo cultures, doing some biochar demos, and then there's um, some question panels and stuff like that, but really focusing on as much hands-on, interactive stuff as possible. going to be a ton of fun, and then all the best ganja in the state, all the regenerative growers, um, all the the best ferments and stuff. Everybody ferments their own food, and we're going to have educational panels on you know how to ferment your own food, as well as the crossovers and like how you can use that information to ferment your own uh, inputs for your garden, and like just all this wonderful stuff connecting so many dots, and honestly just celebrating being alive and listening to music and just having fun under the full moon. So, highly, highly recommend you guys come check this out. It's September 9th through 11th this year, up in northern Michigan, uh, near Bel Air, Michigan. And just 22-acre property, uh, all the coolest soil nerds. Uh, great time. Excellent. Great time. That sounds, yeah. that, man, that sounds like summer camp to me, man. That sounds For real. That sounds like right up my alley. So, yep. Please come on out, man. I, Check it out. I, dude, I am, I am actually very tempted. So yeah. uh, we'll have to continue that conversation. Awesome. All right. So Chandler, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to share your experience. Um, you know, this, you know, worms are one of those things where we all know that they're vital and we, you know, we all try to have worms in our cultivations, you know, environment. But, um, but I, you know, I'm probably not the only one that really did not have a relationship with worms or like, I really didn't know much, but after, after chatting with you, I feel a lot more prepared to, you know, get into stronger relationship with worms and, and I, and I bet I'm not the only one. So, so thank you so much for sharing all this experience and for the, um, you know, the kind of evangel, the, the evangelist role that you kind of play by encouraging people mm-hmm. because, um, no doubt us getting into better relationship with worms is going to put us in better relationship with the soil, which is going to, you know, help us regenerate our earth and, um, not break it so quickly. So anyway, cyclical for sure. Yeah. It's been an absolute honor and pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Fantastic. 
All right. So if you, like I, want to follow along with Chandler, there are three uh, key Instagram accounts that you're going to want to check out. All these links will be on the Shaping Fire episode page for this show as well. The first one is uh, Jet House Gardens. Jet House Gardens is Chandler's, um, I would call this his personal page. Um, It's mostly cannabis cultivation and lots of uh, natural farming preps and places he goes. It's it's just naturally, it's just just cool. So like follow Jet House Gardens, that's that's good stuff. Um, Second is Wormies GR. So it's W-O-R-M. I E S G R. Um, that is where, um, where Chandler works as director of living soil and um, uh, they essentially run a worm castings and education and soil company. It's like, like pretty much everything about, um, you know, worms essentially. And that is, that, that is fun to follow for education. Um, but also it's, it's just kind of cool. You see applications and things that are happening locally for them, um, projects that they're working on. It's just like inspiring. So, so Wormy's GR is cool too. And then, of course, as uh, Chandler already plugged, the Michigan Compost Cup. Um, even if you are not, um, you know, going to make the trip to Michigan, if you're not a Midwest person, um, the Michigan Compost Cup Instagram is still fun to follow. Um, not only do you get to again more education. Education, but um, as they get more of their uh, videos of speakers public, um, you'll be able to access them and, and get knowledge there. So the, the the Instagram for that is Michigan underscore compost underscore cup. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shangolos on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.